Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, more and more Canadians are vaccine shopping as they ask themselves if they should be getting the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. Dr. Peter Uni, the director of Ontario's COVID science table, says there is no better or worse, and he joins us to explain. The Ontario government has announced a cabinet shuffle, with the biggest focus being on Merrily Fulton's departure from the long-term care file and Rod Phillips making his return as a replacement. We'll talk about the implications of that. And it's National Indigenous Peoples Day. We'll also talk about the work being done to decolonize museums in Canada. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, let's uh, get into vaccines. This is a, a kind of a change day now. Hamilton has officially moved into one of the hotspots areas. London, yeah, not yet. Uh, but the the vaccination rates are the key element here and how accessible vaccinations are. There's some concern, though, about some people with vaccine hesitancy. A new Ipsos poll for Global News finds there are still some people that are resistant to getting vaccinated against COVID-19. But they say an incentive could change that. Global's Jeff Smith reports. Of the 1,001 Canadian adults surveyed earlier this month, 9% said they're unsure if they'll get the vaccine, and another 9% say they definitely will not. Those sentiments are a little stronger in women than men and a little stronger among younger people. So what might change their minds? Among those who haven't been vaccinated yet, just over half say they will or might for a chance at a million-dollar prize. But handing them $100 could be slightly more effective. Even a $25 reward would work almost as well, or a paid day off. But that leaves more than 40% of the unvaccinated saying 100 bucks wouldn't change their minds, indicating barriers to overcome for a small minority of Canadians. Jeff Smith, Global News. It's troubling, and there's a discussion going on now about vaccine hesitancy, certainly, but also about vaccine shopping. And uh, I'm not so sure that's necessary. As a matter of fact, I think our next guest will probably tell us it, it absolutely is not necessary. Uh, Dr. Peter Uni is the director of Ontario's Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, welcome back to the program. Great to have you back with us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. Let's, uh, doctor, let's talk a little bit about uh, this, this shopping that seems to be going around. And the question I guess a lot of folks are asking these days is Pfizer or Moderna? What should I get? What is the answer to that, doctor? It doesn't matter is the answer, not at all. So look at the US first, 41% of people received Moderna, 56% received Pfizer. Um, yesterday in the evening, I just received new data coming from ICS indicating for Ontario that Moderna shots are at least as effective as Pfizer shots against the new Delta variant. If I look at the trials, everything is compatible. You know, they're basically looking the same. Safety profiles are the same. Effectiveness is the same. This is just like two different brands of gasoline. I heard the, when you were on with the Mercedes Stevenson yesterday on uh, on the West Block. I heard you use that analogy. I mean, whether you use Petro Canada or Shell, it's gasoline, right? And you put it in your car, and it works. And the same exactly. thing with the vaccine. Here it is for these two, you know, these two are absolutely comparable. So don't conflate things, you know, with the AstraZeneca versus mRNA vaccines. That's a different story. But for these two, they're really comparable. And for everything we know, we just need to get these shots now aboard because we need optimal protection also against Delta. We're in a race against time, against reopening, and we will win that, but not if we start to be picky here. Doctor, there's some concern about uh, the AstraZeneca folks, too. And, uh, you know, we, we know about the change that, that came down about a week or so ago now that said that second dose probably should be uh, either Pfizer or Moderna uh, to make it more eff efficient, of course, at battling, uh, as you just mentioned, the Delta variant. Uh, but there's also some concern about differing messages all the time. How come we're getting told one thing one month and then two weeks later we're being told another? Uh, please explain maybe to our listeners exactly what's going on here. I, the, the sense I'm getting here is... So we're dealing with a totally different situation here with the, the Delta variant than we did, for instance, with the, the, the virus a year ago. Oh, for sure. You know, what you need to be aware of that we as as, uh, as uh, medical uh, specialists are accustomed to that. Things are changing over time. Typically, one of these cycles is several years. We're doing that in real time now, and our cycles sometimes are now just several weeks. So we see something new that's uh, actually coming. You know, there's a change in situation. There's more data generated much, much faster than for everything else in medicine. And this means the guidance can change not every year, but every few 
weeks. This is absolutely normal what we're seeing, and uh, the track we're on is 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 a, is a, a nearly optimal track. We did everything right. We started with the first doses and got as many first doses as possible into people's arms. Great, and now we're just optimizing just everything else. And what we see is indeed a second dose of an mRNA vaccine is just more effective, more protective against the Delta variant, and that's what is needed right now. And, and by process, I guess that would mean that if there's another variant that comes to him maybe a year from now, there may be a change in the vaccine regimen at that point too, depending on what, the, uh, what that variant might be. Oh, for sure. You know, we might need uh, booster doses. And again, remember, we have with the mRNA technology, we now have a plug and play vaccine that will be much easier also to adapt for uh, for booster shots. That's what probably will happen as much as we're accustomed to it with the flu shot here. It will be a similar story. There were some concerns with AstraZeneca, of course, because of the blood clotting issue. And, and I know that the stats indicate that it's a very rare occurrence, but it was a concern nonetheless. Uh, now that uh, we seem to be getting a lot more reliance on Moderna, uh, there's a lot of that seeming to be coming into the country right now. Uh, we've heard some cases of, of some cardiac problems with some patients in situations like that. Is that concerning to you, doctor? Yes. Yeah, so first of all, we need to uh, clearly distinguish between these very, very serious, very specific blood clots that are much more difficult to manage than what we're talking about here, which would be a, a mild heart inflammation or an inflammation of the pericardium. That's the back surrounding the heart. And when this happens, um, it happens perhaps roughly in one in 25 to one in 30,000 cases of younger people, predominantly males, you can absolutely manage that. And now there's something which is really important to realize. With the new Delta variant, for those who remain unvaccinated, the, the probability that they eventually get COVID during the next 12 to 18 months is very high, way above 50%. Once you get COVID, your risk of developing um, a, a, a myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart muscle, is actually considerably higher, about five times higher than compared with this small risk that we see predominantly in boys and younger males of about one in 25,000. And again, remember, this is mild. This is not a situation like what we had with it, with this blood clots with AstraZeneca. Not at all. We take all of that very seriously, but we're okay there. There's another part, which is this is only happening after the second dose, you know, for young males or for boys, not happening after the first dose. For first dose, the frequency is about the same as we see it in the background. This happens every now and then very rarely, even though you haven't had a vaccine or an infection or so. And uh, after the first dose, this is not more frequent than what we see in the background. Only after the second dose, then there's this increase, as I said, about one in 25,000. And, and you're saying that is a treatable condition then, if in fact you are oh. one of that, if you're that one in 25,000. Absolutely. And there's the other part, you know, again, science is evolving. We will see how this all plays out. Young people have a much stronger immune response uh, after the first dose of the vaccine. And we may see in a few weeks or so, therefore, it's also good that we wait with second doses, you know, for a 12 or 14 year old or so. We may see that actually one dose is very protective already for a 14 year old boy or so. And uh, we'll see how this goes during the next six to eight weeks or so, what the new evidence will show. So I've also heard some stories, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, Doctor, uh, about people that are having that, uh, Moderna as a second shot. Uh, it seems as if uh, they, they've, you, you, we're told that you can feel kind of miserable for a day or two after the, the second shot sometimes. I, I didn't experience that with my first shot with Pfizer, but I'm hearing something about Moderna. Uh, at what point do you say, hey, there's something wrong here? After two or three days, if you're still feeling miserable, or do you just assume that this is just going to pass anyway because it's just the vaccine reaction? Yeah, indeed. So uh, first of all, you know, when you have a reaction or when you're not, it doesn't matter there. I did I'm, after my second shot, I had very little reaction. I was surprised how little. But in many situations, this reaction is working, developing the appropriate reaction, and this is all working beautifully. And uh, what you typically have is a time frame of two to three days, and then things, you know, slowly just uh, just uh, disappear, and that's it. And it couldn't can well be. It's quite likely actually that after the second shot, you feel more than after the first shot. wasn't this wasn't the, the case for me to be honest, but it can happen. And it's the same for Moderna and for Pfizer. Uh, well, as you say, you know, the alternative being uh, the, you know, the incidence of actually catching the Delta variant, uh, you weigh that against the fact that you might feel 
miserable for a day or two, and I guess that, that should make the decision much, much easier. Uh, one of the more important things that uh, that I wanted to touch on here, of course, is we're heading into holiday season. Uh, summertime, people tend to travel, want to go on vacations and things of this nature. Uh, as of yet, there is no vaccine for children. There are people under 12 at this stage. Uh, what's your anticipation about when that may actually happen, Doctor? Yeah, I I originally said of, uh, just a few days ago that I would hope that we would be ready, perhaps in autumn already. To be honest, I think it will take longer. Um, so for below 12 year olds, because there's also those finding studies going on, etc. We don't know yet about the right dose. I would believe that it probably will take until the end of the year, beginning of next year, before we can start vaccinating. If we will be earlier, great. But right now we need to plan in that we may not be ready, you know, in September, October to vaccinate younger kids. What is, what's the process here? Is it is it the same basic vaccine and they're just talking about uh, how much of it to give children? Is that is that the, the point that's uh, of contention right now, why they're, they're being so cautious about this? Yeah, so it's different aspects. One is first, you indeed need to find the right dose and this can be different. You know, we talked about that already. The immune system reacts differently. Of course, also body weights are different, but th there's an entire range of things you need to consider. These dose finding studies, how we call them, will take a moment. Once they have found the right dose, they will still need to do larger trials. And again, this will take a moment. So what I don't know right now is where they stand exactly and the timelines that I'm being given really point to more towards uh, very much end of the year before before we get and then again having said that remember how fast things suddenly worked out with uh, Pfizer and Moderna mm -hmm. uh, and I guess the best advice for parents who are concerned about that sort of thing and where the uh, you know the the safety of their children if they are going to be traveling during holidays uh, is for the parents themselves to make sure that they're vaccinated but that's first and second shot Oh, for sure. Again, you know, uh, this is all just uh, running through people because viruses don't just, you know, just linger somewhere and you just pick them up. So if the parents are fully vaccinated, they also protect their children. And if they make sure that, you know, the people they mingle with are also fully vaccinated, that will help big time. And we're in a unique situation in Canada. We will have enough vaccines, you know, by the end of July to have everybody fully vaccinated who wants to be fully vaccinated. This is an extremely privileged situation. Are you comfortable with the rate of vaccination here in the country? I know it started off very slowly and there was a supply problem, which was well documented. And we all know about that now, but we seem to be hitting our stride right now. And, I, I, and I'm looking at some of the stats here and uh, I think about, just about 70% or so. And uh, But ultimately we want to get up, I would think, around 80, 85%, don't we? Yes, indeed. Right now, we will be at 76% of the eligible population having received at least one dose today, probably here in Ontario, and about 24% are fully vaccinated of those age 12 plus, which is great. We just now need to continue. Remember, this Delta thing is roughly twice as transmissible as the classical coronavirus that we uh, got from uh, originally, you know, from, uh, from China and then Europe. And uh, that's the problem. This means it will find its way in all the unvaccinated pockets. And it's also more severe. It results in a higher risk of hospitalization. This all really means, you know, we see that in Yukon now that if we remain unvaccinated, the virus will find its way and we will just get ill then later in the process, which just is absolutely silly and unnecessary. These, these vaccines are so good. They're so safe. Remember how many doses are now in people's arms worldwide. Um, it's it's, it's re remarkable. And we just need to continue with that. And ideally, we get to a vaccine coverage in all the age groups, in all the regions of the province of 85% or more. And I know that in the initial variant uh, back up a year and a half or so ago when we were so concerned about this, uh, a lot of people, I think, unjustifiably characterized this as an old people's disease because the predominant number of people that were actually uh, being hospitalized seemed to be 50 plus. Uh, this, the Delta variant, though, doctor, the stats I've seen on this seem to indicate that it's a much younger demographic that are most affected by this. Oh, look, it's a combination, of course. You know, first of all, a lot of the of, uh, people above uh, 65 are already fully vaccinated or partially vaccinated. And partial vaccination protects you already against being hospitalized for COVID, which is great news, no? So all of that helps. And now we see the remainder of people. And of course, they get younger and younger. And what we see is, you know, that we still have then hospital admissions and we have ICU admissions. We have 35-year-old people currently on ECMO in ICU still in this 
this province who are likely dying. That's the reality we're talking about here. This is really needs to be taken seriously. Remember how much we struggled with the, with the, the first wave, for instance, in New York or Madrid and other places in the world. This thing that we're talking about is actually much worse. But we have a recipe against it, and that's these vaccines. And therefore, it pains me then to see that some people come up with some weird conspiracy theories that are absolutely untrue, and uh, and uh, other people actually listen to these theories and then don't get vaccinated. This will cost lives. We need to be aware of that. Absolutely. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Always insightful and, uh, and, and very educational, too. Uh, thank you so much for the time, and stay well, and hopefully we'll talk again down the road. Thanks again for having me. Good luck for this week. Thank you very much. Dr. Peter Uni, Director of the Ontario Science Table and a Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology, of course, at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As expected, uh, we had told you about this a couple of weeks ago, I guess. Now, uh, the Ford government has announced a cabinet shuffle and, uh, well, they're bringing back a familiar face. Global's Brianna Carnegie has the details. Ontario has the new Minister of Long-Term Care, Rod Phillips. You may remember he resigned at the end of 2020 after taking a vacation in St. Bart's amid the pandemic. The move isn't sitting well with Liberal MPP Stephen Blay. He clearly broke the travelling restrictions during the pandemic, uh, was caught red-handed, and uh, now he's uh, back in, in Doug Ford's cabinet. Phillips, who was previously Ontario's finance minister, replaces Dr. Marilee Fullerton's role. She's the new Minister of Children, Community and social services. But NDP MPP Sarah Singh says that's another challenging role. I'm very worried for families of children with autism. Are they going to get the support that they need? For months, opposition politicians and long-term care advocates have called for Fullerton's resignation over her handling of long-term care during the pandemic. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So uh, is this uh, in anticipation of the upcoming election, or are they just trying to get the best people in the best possible portfolios? Well, let's talk about that. Joining us is Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. And uh, Laura, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time again today. Morning. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, let's get it right into Rod Phillips. We'll talk about some of the other appointments in just a little while. Uh, the opposition parties, of course, are jumping all over this, suggesting that, look, the guy screwed up, he broke the rules, he shouldn't be encapped at all. Uh, but we also know that uh, that he's one of Doug Ford's favorites. He always liked him. He was a trusted guy uh, that he liked to lean on from time to time. So I, I guess from that context, this isn't really a surprise, is it? Well, I mean, there's a whole lot going on, as you know, but uh, sure, you put him in the penalty box. It wasn't anything more, really more serious than that, except it is for the people of Ontario. So while this guy decided to go to St. Bart's on a Caribbean vacation and put up fake Zoom backgrounds and pre-written messages and try to con us all uh, in this province that, you know, he was following the guidelines, there were actually seniors in long-term care who were dying in atrocious numbers and conditions. Uh, we all, I think, can agree, or at least most of the province, that the handling of long-term care has been one of the great shames of this pandemic in Ontario. And so this minister now is going into that role. Um, and I, I realize his background was as finance minister previous to, you know, getting put in the penalty box. But it seems like there's an empathy gap there. How do you, how do you take over a, a crisis situation that demands the utmost in organization and empathy and investment if you were away at St. Bart's? during some of the worst times during this pandemic. So I think there's a credibility issue with Rod Phillips. There's an empathy issue. Uh, and also it's interesting, of course, that they've moved Fullerton out of that role, highly controversial handling of LTC. An election is coming up in less than a year. So it's, it's strategic to have a new minister say, well, you know, I've taken over the portfolio and therefore this, that, and the other thing. It kind of makes the criticism against the handling of LTC a little bit more arm's length. But here's the thing. It's not as if they don't know what to do to fix the problem. And and as I mentioned in my commentary at 810 this morning, I mean, the, the, you know, the problems, a lot of the problems predate the Ford government. I mean, subsequent, you know, past governments have done a terrible job with long-term care as well. But like everything else, COVID has really just magnified the concerns and the problems here. Uh, and report after report has said, look, spend more money, pay more people, you know, the, the, the people that work in these facilities. You know, where's the air conditioning? Remember they promised that a year ago, Doug Ford said every, every room was going to be air condition well it's not it's 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 a lot of talk and not a whole lot of action why is it going to change uh, now that there's a change with the minister well they did take action they just didn't take the action that the residents needed they took action as you recall to protect the owners of these homes right 
So, yeah. I mean, it's not that they're incapable of acting. It's not that the pandemic so froze their capacity that they couldn't put forward any other legislation. They did to protect the private owners of these long-term care homes. So, I mean, they have no credibility on this issue. And they're bringing in a minister who has no credibility in terms of his own response to the pandemic. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's a fail of a move, except you've got a, a calculus that must be going on that says, okay, if we can just move Fullerton away from LTC, Rod, you know, will be good at defending the portfolio. He can announce a bunch of changes people want before the election. But it's part of a, it's part of a bigger calculus of how do we look better coming into the election, given Ford's, you know, a third wave, terrible drop in popularity. So they're trying to have a more diverse cabinet. They're trying to reflect more what the population looks like. They're trying to move some ministers away from some high uh, intensity portfolios to reframe things. Uh, but it's pretty weak overall because they still kept Leche in education. And I can't think of any portfolio that's going to hit harder this coming year than education. Ontario students have the least education in the past year in Canada. Uh, so, you know, it's been shameful. And, and I don't know how Lecce going to defend that record. Well, and that was one of the surprises because there's a lot of rumor uh, uh, circulating around Queen's Park over the last couple of days that he was one of the people that was going to be moved. I know, I know the premier likes this guy, uh, but it, you know, you talk about long-term care being a hot button issue. So is education, as you just mentioned, uh, and that's something that doesn't seem to be anywhere near close to being resolved with what's going on. Uh, we don't even know what's going to be happening in September right now. But the premise for this whole thing. Uh, when the first you know, sniff of uh, a cabinet shuffle uh, started to surface a couple of months ago uh, was that uh, he was told, I, I assume by his uh, re-election team, who now seem to be ensconced at Queen's Park, that his cabinet was too male and too white uh, to go to the polls again. Uh, and it, it, uh, under that premise, Laura, everything that he's done here, it smacks more of, okay, I, I just want to, I want this to look better for the election, as opposed to I want the most capable people there. Well, yeah, I, I would agree. It's an optics exercise. Uh, and back to education, if we can, for a second. I know Lecce's got some PR chops, uh, but doing little punchy videos and, uh, you know, coming out and saying one thing and it being proven to be another thing is not how good public relations is done. And I don't think he can spin his way past what you just said. We're sitting here in June. I just talked to my kids that their school is ending in days. Right. And you're just saying out loud that we still don't know in Ontario what's happening in September. You've got Alberta and Saskatchewan announcing they're fully opening up. You've got, you know, much of the U.S. fully opened up. The idea that we're still not in a position where we could send kids back to school in September, knowing that the schools have had their retrofits, knowing that the education workers have been prioritized for their vaccinations. It's ridiculous. You know, so he can so Ford can shuffle his cabinet to look as demographically diverse as he wants to. But if we don't have people who can either defend the record of the Ford government on some of these key issues or can present something different to the electorate, um, they're in trouble. Now, let me just put a caveat on that, Bill, as I always do. It doesn't matter how bad a party is or a leader is if there isn't a viable alternative for people to vote for. And so I think the Liberals uh, have a, and the NDP respectfully have a ton of work to do if they are going to get into serious contention in this next race. Well, and we saw that with the polling that came out last week. As, as badly as, as he has fallen, of course, in popularity, uh, he's still ahead of the other two. And, and exactly. that's because uh, voters are looking at it right now and saying, okay, maybe this guy is the devil we know. Maybe we don't like the job he's doing. Maybe we don't like the team he's got. But you look at the two main alternatives here, and they just figure, well, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of stuck. Now, the problem with that, of course, as we've seen in past elections, Laura, uh, if people get that frustrated about it, sometimes they just don't bother to vote. Well, and notwithstanding the notwithstanding clause that Ford evoked right, to protect campaign donations and, and take a shot at the democratic process. I mean, as far as I understand, that's used for emergency situations, that clause. Uh, so this is hardly an emergency. So they, they're just showing their hand, whether it's shuffling the cabinet to have, you know, something that is optically more diverse or, and, you know, it may well be that there are some ministers that have joined that are really going to do a terrific job. I don't want to prejudge their performance. But it certainly looks like an exercise for the election in terms of optics. But, you know, you take that, you take the fact that Ontario has been in the longest lockdown in the world, I believe, at this point, in terms of our handling of the pandemic. Like, we didn't do well here. For one of the richest countries with a tremendous amount of opportunity, your guest prior to me, the doctor from the science table, said that, you know, in Canada, we're, we're in this 
extremely privileged position where we will have enough shots for everyone who wants one to be fully vaccinated by the end of the summer. I mean, and Ontario, we're still not sure what's happening with our kids in the fall. We're still in lockdown. So if you take the handling of the pandemic and all the other things that the Ford government has decided to do or not done well, and they're still, he's still pulling ahead. Uh, you know, it, it's not, a, I'm not a partisan. I look at it and I say, it doesn't matter how much people might like the Liberals or the NDP if they're still not taking advantage of what is, you know, by the record, a poor handling of this pandemic that can be juxtaposed with other jurisdictions around the world, then then you know, there's a real problem with their own leadership or their own popularity. It's also been reported, of course, I mentioned this a minute ago, that the, the re-election team is, is in place right now. Uh, those that got him elected in the first place are back, and, and they're the ones who are advising him right now. So I guess from that standpoint, Laura, we can pretty much expect that just about everything we hear from this government from here on until Election Day next spring uh, is going to be geared towards re-election. That's going to be it. It's, it's the, you know, what's what can we possibly do to put us in a more positive light with the Ontario voters at this stage? Uh, but they've got a lot of work to do, especially on those two key portfolios. Long-term care is an issue that's not going to go away, and, and you can't just cover it up by saying we have a new minister here. Uh, what's your kind? Where's your game plan for this? Uh, and you heard the quote also. I mean, you know, Dr. Fulton has been moved to another portfolio right now, but that's the autism file, which was just as contentious. Uh, kind of got faded, you know, to the background because of what happened with the COVID, but it's still there. And there's a, a large number of very concerned parents and educators that are concerned about the Ford policy towards that aspect of it. Yes, there's, that's a huge uh, upcoming issue, uh, the Ontario Autism Program and all the changes that were made to it and its implementation. That's going to be extremely big before the next election, I would suspect. The back-to-school thing, the, the remnants of the economy that have you know, managed to survive this extended lockdown is another thing. But overall, the, I think the messaging around the pandemic and the handling of it, I mean, on Friday... We heard that um, Ford's okay with opening up and or going to stage two sooner if his lead doctor advises it. But at the same time, there's a new lead doctor coming in, so people are just kind of like, "Well, where? Who's making the call? You know, is it is it going to be you know uh, June 31st? Is it going to be July 1st? Like, when is this announcement coming? We're constantly being teased. That's no way to run a restaurant, run a business, run an economy. And I think that Ontarians, you know, maybe more than the school issue and some of these and other issues are equally frustrated, perhaps, with just the messaging game. So, yes, I would suspect, you know, it's one thing to get power. It's another thing entirely to keep it. Uh, governments who want to keep power tend to come out with all the money and all oh, Sounds like we have we lost, Laura? Yeah, we seem to be having just a, a communications glitch here. We'll just try to fix this up in just a couple of seconds. Uh, talking with Laura Babcock from Power Group, of course, about the uh, cabinet shuffle uh, announced by the Ford government late last week. And uh, the, the big name, of course, Rod Phillips is back in cabinet now. Uh, he'll be in charge of uh, the Ministry of Long-Term Care. And uh, a lot of concern about exactly how he's going to tackle that portfolio. Uh, and some other names, too. We mentioned uh, that uh, there were going to be some people who are probably just going to be left out of cabinet altogether. And, and in fact, that did happen. Uh, a number of people that, uh, well, basically were critical of uh, the Ford policy about uh, reopenings and, and closing downs, of course, depending on how the pandemic was going with the number of new cases, et cetera. And uh, folks like uh, John Yakubuski and, uh, and Jeff Urich, uh, two people that were critical of that, uh, are out of cabinet altogether. Uh, and the concern about that, of course, is, well, you know, what does that do for their re-election chances? And, uh, well, we've been told that the, the party's not that much concerned about that because those are all strong conservative writings. Anyway, Laura, I think we got you back. You were making a point? Yeah, sorry about the call dropping off. Uh, no, I'm simply saying that, you know, it's standard practice to retain power. An incumbent uh, government will drop all of its solutions and funding and incentives towards those critical days for, at the end of the election. The issue I'm just pointing out is that, you know, voters should look at the whole of the government, because oftentimes government do the draconian measures or the unpopular measures early on. They cut programs that were promised. They, they, they disrupt things. And then, you know, once in a while they get hit with a crisis, uh, not necessarily the scale of this pandemic, but they get hit with a crisis. How did they manage that? And essentially don't just be alert by any government, by what they throw during the election campaign, by what they promise and offer. People really need to look at the whole of the performance of this government as they go into the election. 
And I know that some folks that are watching here are saying, well, look at some of these things that you've just brought up, for instance, are not that big a deal. Uh, you know, the, the Election Spending Act and, of course, the the contributions uh, they talked about in the Notwithstanding Clause, that may be a little too inside baseball for some people. I'm not so sure about that. I think people are paying attention now, maybe more focused than they were because of what's gone on during the pandemic. And we understand now probably more than ever how government policies can have an impact on public health in situations like this, which is why we're looking at things like long-term care. We're looking at incursions into the green belt and things of this nature right now and saying, is this really the kind of government we want? And is this the kind of Ontario we want? Now, those are f pretty serious questions. And I, I'm sure a lot of people want some answers to that. Well, and, you know, people can go, I was on your show the day after the Ford government won the election. I remember I was on with Tom Cooper yep. and we were talking about, you know, the basic income pilot and we saw what happened with that right it was supposed to be continued and it wasn't so i mean there there were have been a lot of things that have happened this has been a very active government even during the pandemic what were those actions what were those priorities you know joining a challenge to the carbon tax the the whole thing around um those we remember silly little things like the the uh, license plates and the stickers on the gas tanks and the, the, the local beer in every corner <laughs> commercials that they were doing. I mean, there's been a lot of things that this government has done, their own news network. There's been a lot. And I think that as people get closer to the election, they have to just look at the whole picture, wh whether it's the Trudeau government federally who's seeking power when they call the election or, or anybody else. You know, they have to look at the full picture. If I were strategizing for the Ford team, I'm sure there'd be a, a certain conversation going on about, well, if we're fully open as an economy and people are back to spending and visiting and traveling, how much attention is really going to be on the past? How much will people be feeling like it's a new era? You know, so we hear about the kind of roaring 20s, right? That idea of coming out of the Spanish flu and the war and this sense of bien-être and everybody has a joie de vivre and so we don't have to worry about nasty things like, you know, poor handling of this or that issue. So there, there might be some of that that they're counting on this kind of sense of relief and gratitude but i really think it's imperative that voters in ontario not forget uh the friday press conferences and all of the decisions that have been made by this government and truly measure them on their competency the concern here with any government whatever political stripe it is is, is okay are they going to govern for the people or are they just going to look after their friends uh, and we've seen again politicians of all stripes have been guilty of that in the past and the concern about the Ford government was that very same thing but when you look at the track record uh, you look at for instance the fact that uh, you know if, if you have a loved one who's a resident in a long-term care facility uh, you're very upset if you own one of those facilities you're on the board of directors and a lot of former conservatives are it's been a pretty good time for you I mean they actually got bonuses I had to give them back because of a public outcry but uh, they're doing pretty well thank you very much especially since the government's basically said w w you guys run it the way you want we're not going to inspect you as often as we should uh, we're not going to insist on doing the things that need to be done to make these better facilities. So they're okay. Uh, the people that are making huge contributions to the party, you can do that more now with more money because of this new legislation. Uh, the developers that, uh, that you know, incursions into the green belt, yeah, you guys go ahead. That's okay. So there, there are people that have done pretty well by this, but you have to ask yourself, uh, you, as an individual, are you better off than you were three years ago? And I think a lot of people right now are very skeptical of that. Well, and you can add to that pile a whole bunch of things. I mean, cronyism is, is alive and well currently with this government, uh, but just the fact that this government failed on rapid testing implementation and on contact tracing. I mean, there's a reason. It's not just because Ford ignored the disaster warnings in February and decided to open up too early and then put us into a terrible third wave. There's been a lot of mismanagement of the pandemic, but all of a sudden you can buy these tests at a drugstore, right? You know, for profit, you can purchase these tests. I mean, what, what happened to the $4.4 Have we found that yet, Bill, of, no, of no. money that hasn't been accounted for? And so, you know, so you, you, you add all of that up, and then, of course, you change it so that you're able to have donations. There are a lot of people, as you made the point, who were enriched during this chaos or who were protected or came out quite well. Where is that money going to go back into? Supporting the government that, you know, that greased the way for them or made things better for them. So, I mean, that's how politics works in a democracy. Unfortunately, money has a huge role to play. And it's for people, I think, to just be very aware and say, you know, given that all politicians fail and have cronyism and have failed policies and poor cabinet ministers, what did this government do vis-a-vis -vis all of that? And as an individual in this province, is this the kind of leadership and the kind of ethos and the kind of priorities and values that I want espoused going forward? Have the messages from this government conveyed the kind of 
empathy and professionalism and, um, you know, I alone, if I were just voting on messaging, I would have a hard time reelecting this government because of the way they teased on the pandemic and floated travelers to put businesses through such chaos and talked about extra police powers and then had to yank them back and didn't tell the pharmacists about the vaccine roll. I mean, just on a comms perspective, I think they have been an abject failure. So, you know, people are going to have to make up their calculations, but it should be on the whole of what they've done, not just on this cabinet shuffle and what they might throw at the electorate closer to the election. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Uh, As always, Laura, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is National Indigenous Peoples Day. And uh, as we've been talking about, of course, uh, it's been laser-focused on a number of different issues uh, since we learned of the tragic circumstances in Kamloops a couple of weeks ago and understood, of course, that that's really just a piece of a much bigger concern and problem here that we need to address uh, and have not done a very good job of doing that over the last generations, and we need to do something about that. And one of that, one of the elements of that, of course, is education and the role of museums and cultural artifacts in our society. And there is work being done now to decolonize uh, the way the story of Canada is being told and I think that's going to be a key part to this. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Kara Krompadic, who is a, a professor in the Faculty of Information, Expertise, Monuments, and Memory, Decolonizing Practices. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us on this very important day. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, about colonization in the first place. And uh, I, I have to tell you, as I read more about this over the last couple of weeks, Professor, it just made me rethink what I learned in school way back when, what we've all been taught in school about colonization, about building empires and things of this nature. It, it, it really goes back to Europe. I mean, you know, we talk about the impact it's having here in Canada, but it's something our ancestors really brought with them uh, from their homelands. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's two processes that often get talked about in the same breath, but, you know, imperialism um, or colonialism. Um, and in Canada, we're, we're particularly concerned with settler colonialism, right? So the relocation of people from one place into the world and their imposition into another sort of geographically distinct place. And, and I know some people may get upset by this, but I mean, we have to talk about you know, some cold, hard facts here and some uncomfortable truths. Uh, colonization, colonization essentially was uh, we're coming over to that new land, uh, not to share in the culture of the people that are already, ex- but we want to take it over. We want to, we want to live there. We want to push you out of the way. We want to build our cities, our towns, our industries. We want to have our religion. That's, that was basically the mindset. For for many years, I mean, you know, the one of the really interesting things about Canada in some ways when we talk about colonialism and when we talk about settlement is that um, what it looked like on the east coast of Canada, um, you know, it, that happened, you know, sort of 500 years, you know, 300 years earlier, say, than on the west coast of Canada and then the northern coast um, of Canada, right? We, we, we see colonialism playing out a little bit differently in all of these parts of the country, but but what it came to and what it collectively came to was absolutely this desire to own the land, to control the land, to control the resources, um, and and to assimilate um, and eradicate the Indigenous presence and the Indigenous sovereignty. Um, So, you know, whatever time it sort of started, that's where it came to, and that's how it came together in Canada. I, uh, there was one particular incident. I, I, I don't know why this one stuck out with me last evening as I was reading about this. Uh, we learned uh, it, you know, how, how they actually colonized the prairie provinces because a lot of people wanted to stay in the eastern part of the country, obviously, mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. And if I recall correctly, they basically they said, look, if you want to live out there, we'll give you, a, what is it, five acres or something like that and a mule, and, and that's your property. And, and I, we thought of that at the time. What an ingenious idea to get people to actually go out there and to work the land. That, that's, as I'm reading last night, I'm thinking, it wasn't their land to give away, but that's what they were doing anyway. That, that's um, absolutely a great reading of it. So often Canada gave land away that, that was not theirs to give. Um, and in some cases, that those lands were protected by treaty. But over time, we see those treaty agreements being eroded um, and, and written over. Um, and that's definitely, you know, um, the story of, of my own families coming to Canada was that they were able to acquire land in Canada, um, you know, around Lake Superior um, and up in northern Ontario as, as government sort of parceled up and, and started giving away land that, that had been under treaty. 
So as we grew up uh, in, in different generations, of course, and we're taught this in, in our schools, uh, we just took this as well. That's the way you, you colonize. That's the way that, you, you know, we spread across the, the, the continent. And that's, you know, the result that we have here is, is our Canada today. Mm-hmm. Why was there virtually no mention in our history of indigenous peoples and their history? I mean, we knew they were here first. And, and you know, okay, that's that chapter. Now let's move on to how we did what we did in Winnipeg and Calgary and all these other places. It just, it just I, I know that, you know, we, it depends to a certain extent on who wrote the history, but the, the exclusion of indigenous rights and indigenous peoples in this is, it, it's really almost criminal. Well, one of the really complicated patterns um, is that colonialism, especially when we're thinking about the Canadian context, comes really, at, it's really intensive at the same time that ideas around evolution and social evolution or human evolution are taking hold of um, particularly European knowledge circles. And racism is also part of that idea of human evolution where um, there was an idea of progress and there was an idea that um, humans were going to evolve in a particular direction and that direction looked really a whole lot like Western Europe. And so there was this sense that that is inevitably where all, all, of, all human societies would end up. We now can look at that critically and think, no, actually that, that progress narrative, that evolution narrative is mistaken. Um, it's, it's not actually how we understand biological evolution, um, and it shouldn't be how we understand human evolution. But this idea of progress is really so ingrained in our society now, and the sense of an, an inevitability. So there was, um, you know, not only we, we learned about Indigenous peoples as though they were part of the past, and only part of the past and not part of the present or the future. And sadly, one of the things we, we really didn't teach was the continued Indigenous resistance. So sometimes people in Canadian society think this is new, right? That Indigenous resistance and claims for sovereignty and questions and petitions around land, that this is new, when in fact, it ha- has happened throughout the history of the land and throughout the history of Canada, where there has always been petitioning and requests to the government um, to to uphold and, and to live out the treaties. And, and not unique to Canada, but I'm, clearly it's our circumstance, and that's what we need to deal with about what's happening here uh, within our borders. But this this was happening, as you mentioned, Professor, uh, globally. Uh, you know, as, as explorers, as we've come to know, uh, went to different parts of the world uh, to claim that land for Spain, for England, for whatever it might have been in, in that particular circumstance. There was, the commonality was as soon as they landed there, uh, they looked at the, the indigenous people, whatever that was, whether it was Africa or whether it was the, the West Indies, whatever, as inferior. They're not like us. They don't have what we have. Ergo, they're not as good as us. And that, that seemed to be the mindset right from the beginning. Often so, though, though sometimes we need to really um, spend time with our historians, um, both our indigenous historians and our, our settler historians, and look closely. There, there are moments in, in Canada, and particularly around, around the Great Lakes, where we see <clears throat> colonial officials and government officials trying to figure out indigenous ways and forms of governance and trying to in understand indigenous relations and shape a relationship and an ongoing relationship with indigenous peoples. We can see this in, in sort of earlier treaties and earlier engagements, but that really um, erodes when you have um, strong capitalist interests, when you have um, the growth of an, of an evolutionary mindset and the growth, as you say, of this racist mindset. Were there examples of that 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 we can point to and say, look, there was there was collaboration, there was uh, symmetry there between indigenous peoples and and the newcomers there, where they they not just got along, but they respected each other's uh, situation, each other's culture. There are some very early wampum belts that we see, and we see some interesting agreements um, uh, along the eastern coast of the United States. Um, I think it was with uh, Dutch arrivals. Um, I. I am not a historian, uh, but there is a, a new book out uh, by my colleague who is a historian, uh, Heidi Boaker, um, and she is looking at some of these earlier treaties. And I believe it's, you know, the Treaty of Niagara, for example, shows a different 
set of negotiation and governance practices. Um, I also think of the work of Alan Corbier, who's an Anishinaabe historian uh, and a professor at York University, um, and he has been investigating too um, these early treaties from um, Anishinaabe perspectives and understanding how it w- how it was a m- um, a more two sided conversation. How do we rectify this? And I know there's no you know, quick solution to this, but how do we change that mindset? And education, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, has to be a key part of that. Uh, museums, artifacts, things of this nature, learning about that uh, and respecting the cultures and respecting the, the, the beliefs of, of other people like this. Uh, I, I think there's a, a probably a, a will to do this, Professor, but how, what's, what's the way? How, how do we accomplish something like that? Well, you know, this is a really interesting question, and, and I think the answer is divided. And some people say that this is going to be a slow process of incremental change, that it will take time to learn new ways of working, to um, work through the complexities of returning land, of repatriating ar- artifacts, um, of having different hiring practices and institutions, and to change institutional culture. And yet other people are calling for a seismic realignment. Um, you know, um, Carrie Newman, who is an artist here in Canada, Kwakwakiwak artist, um, you know, he says we've been waiting long enough and, and, and small incremental changes can too easily, he says, maintain the status quo, that we need something bigger uh, and that demonstrates a more concerted effort and commitment to change. Um, change can be scary, and I think for settler Canadians, um, it also means a process of relearning, sort of an unlearning and then a relearning of our own history and of our own story. And, you know, when we start to look at the history of residential schoolings and when we think about the truth and reconciliation process, right, truth is so critical, but the residential schoolings were not alone, right? It wasn't the only instance of harm and violence against Indigenous peoples. And so it requires us to think in new ways about our own country and our own country's story. And, and there's no doubt that that work is hard, but, um, you know, we can't just let it, we can't just push it off um, and just let, you know, it, it frustrates me most when we say, well, our kids will do a better job. Frankly, I should be helping my own children, you know, my own child mm-hmm. think through this and learn for it. I shouldn't ask him to solve problems, you know, that my own generation and previous generations created. I mean, I, th- I think of the outrage some years ago, and when uh, the the water supply in Flint, Michigan, of course, uh, was deemed to be, you know, well, it was it was murderous, actually, <clears throat> and and it, you know they they booted a governor out. They got angry about this. There was a, a big pushback. Right. How many how many indigenous communities right now are still under a boiled water advisory? I mean, it's it's into the dozens, I think, uh, and they continue. And and politicians says yes, we're going to fix that. Uh, the late Gord Downey from the Tragically Hip, that last concert they gave in Kingston, you know, he he actually. Actually, talked to the prime minister who was that in attendance and said, "You've got to do something about this." And the, the nod of "Yes, we do." Years later, we're still in the same situation. And and we just heard this recently with a very eloquent speech from the MP from Nunavut, right? Who who w- was so frustrated, being you know repeatedly ignored or dismissed um, when she raised the housing crisis in the north. Um, and what frustrated her most was that people in positions of power gave lip service to change, but didn't create structural change and didn't actually take the steps towards change. And so, you know, today for National Indigenous Peoples Day, it's a good day for for those in particular who are settler Canadians, who are arrivants, you know, to show solidarity um, and to push our governments to be accountable, right? And, and at the very least, basic human necessities of life, drinking water, right? Well, wouldn't that be a good first step? I mean, towards truth and reconciliation to at least give them decent living conditions and understand the, the, the challenges they're facing, drinking water being one of them. Uh, when I was on city council here in Hamilton years ago, it was the, the public housing and affordable housing was a crisis, still is. There was about a seven-year wait for affordable housing for people. Uh, Six Nations uh, Reserve just down the street from us here in Caledonia, it's a 17-year wait. And, and right. probably more than that now. I mean, the the the, the disconnect here is is just it's it's flabbergasting exactly. And you know, the the obvious question is, why don't we going to do something about it? And I, I'm sure that's what people are asking on a daily basis. Absolutely. And you know, the TRC was a bit of a springboard. It it, it narrowed its focus 
to residential schooling in many ways because it's hard to resist or to object to justice for children who were forcibly taken from their families and placed into these schools. But again, right, the, the bigger picture is about institutionalized racism in healthcare. Right, it's about mm-hmm. institutionalized racism in day schools and day-to-day education, um, and as you say, housing housing crisis um, and and human well-being. And so it, you know, it's not about treating any one symptom, right? In a sense, it's really about thinking holistically. And um, one of the projects I've been following for a few years now, actually, is happening in Hamilton at the Art Gallery of Hamilton that thinks about the Mountain View uh, Sanatorium in Hamilton and the creation of Inuit sculptures, both um, stone and textile there. And one of the things I've been really struck by that by that process in the Art Gallery of Hamilton's work there is that they're not only thinking about the art and artistic practice and decolonizing the gallery, they're also drawing attention to healthcare and inadequacies and racism in healthcare. And so I think that's a really important uh, example to look to of, of how are we not just siloing one issue at a time, but how are we trying to grapple with these all all together? And I, and I know there's so many different aspects of the conversation here. I mean, there's there's you know the idea of taking down statues and things of that nature, and and that's a separate part. Uh, but the the element here is is what are we doing now to try to rectify the situation? Uh, you know, tearing down a statue may be symbolic in in many ways, and I can understand that. But at the same time, uh, you know, providing drinking water, uh, you know, providing better health care, uh, much more constructive ways to try to deal with these issues. And I, I guess that really starts with dialogue, doesn't it? Well, I, I think, you know, again, when we look historically at the record, there's been a whole lot of effort at dialogue. Um, and Indigenous peoples across the country have been pretty clear um, about, about basic necessities. Um, and so it's probably time for less dialogue and more action, uh, in my opinion. Um, we know how to put water in. We know how to build water systems. Um, we just need to do it. <laughs> there, there are absolutely then... Um, complex questions around um, restitution of land um, and how we think about that when so much land now has been developed, um, you know, is owned by third parties. Um, you know, there's, there's complications there for sure and more people who are involved. But, you know, when it comes to something like water, we know how to do that. Politicians react to public pressure, and and you know if if there's a demand that this must be done, they will respond to this, and that's why we I guess all have a role to play in this to to make sure that we make that known to them that uh, that this is a priority for us, and uh, if the tragedy in Kamloops and and and. National Indigenous Peoples Day are, are going to be catalysts for that, then all the better for it. But uh, you're right. I mean, we can't just, you know, say, okay, it's midnight, it's the next day now, it's not Indigenous Peoples Day anymore, let's just set those issues aside. Nothing's going to get done. Correct. Yeah, this is going to be a concerted effort, and it, and it will take some time. Um, you know, Justice Mary Sinclair, who is one of the lead commissioners for mm-hmm. the TRC, pointed out that residential schooling happened for seven generations in Canada, right? And colonialism has happened for much longer. Now, he suggested the healing post-residential school might take seven generations for healing to happen. Um, you know, I don't know that we want to wait that long. Um, you know, I think we need to have, um, you know, we, ne- we need to find ways to coexist. Um, it's, it's not the case that, that settlers are going to up and leave. You know, I don't know that we have many other places to go. But learning how to live in a different way and how to coexist in a different way, um, how to understand and really take seriously and honor Indigenous sovereignty, um, I think is, is one of the challenges for settler Canadians, to really wrap our brains around a different way of living and being and governing and not anticipate that our way is the only way or the right way. Absolutely. Professor, thank you so much for the time today. I really do appreciate you spending some time with us. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. I enjoyed our conversation. Take care. Professor Kara Krimpotich, of course, uh, a a very, very important angle on what we have to talk about here in National Indigenous Peoples Day, and that, of course, is understanding our past, and and that's obviously a key element as to where we are right now. But her call to action, I think, is something that politicians just have to pay attention to these days. Lots of talk, not a whole lot of action, and and that is sadly one of the elements that has to be turned around if we're going to do anything constructive here. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.